good morning, everybody. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. We're going to continue this morning in the book of First Peter. Uh, last week, uh, we looked at, as we opened our, our study of this book or this letter, by establishing the Apostle Peter as the author. That's, that's where we started. And then it was written to a series of churches spread out across what is modern-day Turkey, and then it was written to address the believer's response to persecution localized in their society. Again, we talked about how the persecution from Rome, the national persecution, the official state-sanctioned persecution had not quite yet begun. This was more localized, but that the, the national persecution was coming, very, very similar to where we're facing, what we're facing today. And in that introduction, we looked at just the first two verses, we saw the churches then, and by extension the church today, described as exiles living in a land not their ultimate home. As a people actively chosen by God the Father, as having been set apart by the Holy Spirit, and having been reconciled to God through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on their behalf. He reminds them of who they are in Christ, and today we'll see Peter elaborate on the significance of this identity and how it should shape our response to the world around us. So turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's pick up where we left off last week. So at this point, I'm going to ask everyone, we're going to, uh, we used to do this and we kind of got away from it, but we're going to bring it back today. So I'm going to ask everyone, if you will, to stand in honor of the reading of God's word and follow along as we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this letter that we have here uh, preserved for us from Peter to these churches in Turkey. Lord, I thank you for the truth that's contained herein. Lord, I pray that these words this morning would be yours and not mine, that you would speak through me, that you would help me to uh, explain clearly uh, the, the teaching of your word, uh, that this would not be my opinion, but this would, that this would be your truth. Lord, I pray that, it, that the message would be clear, and Lord, I pray that you would 
uh, touch and convict hearts this morning, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only, that we would leave this place uh, changed and different than we came in. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement that's here offered. Lord, help us to leave here encouraged uh, as as we go and as we face a world that is increasingly against everything that you have told is right and good and true. Lord, give us the faith and the courage to stand firm, and it's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Before we dive into our text this morning, I want to briefly highlight or remind you, chase a rabbit for a second here, I want to briefly remind you why we preach the way we do. I was reminded again this weekend that there are false teachers everywhere, including right here in Swansea, right here in our own community. One of the major identifiers of false teachers is that they have some special revelation, some special word from God, or some truth that you don't have. And another is that the Bible is not their ultimate source of authority. Those are two marks, not the only two marks, but two marks of false teaching. The purpose of legitimate biblical preaching is not to fire up your emotions or to give new prophecy or tell stories or inspirational stories or anything like that. Style or flair is okay, but that should never be the focus. That should never be what drives the message. God's Word is truth, and it is the job of the preacher to help the congregation clearly understand what the Word of God teaches. In His Word lies the authority. Pastors go to seminary to understand how to rightly read and interpret the Bible so that they can teach their congregations how to correctly read and accurately interpret the Bible. Everything I say should be grounded in the Word of God, which is why we try to keep our messages closely tied to the text while we deal with it verse by verse as we go through it, while we put the verses on the screen when we do so that you will follow along. And and that's not just so you can keep up, but that's so you can check to make sure that what is being taught to you is actually from the Word of God and not from my own head. It's not what I think that matters, it's what the Bible says. So with that being said, as we work our way through this passage verse by verse, we're going to highlight this morning three resulting realities of heavenly citizenship in the life of the believer today according to Peter. Three results of the heavenly citizenship that we talked about last week. So direct your attention, if you will, to verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. Just that first section there. Verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the first result, we talked again last week about our identity being in Christ, and the first result of that that Peter elaborates on here is that our salvation is secure. Our salvation is secure. After reminding the believers of their identity in Christ, he turns to praise God in verse 3. In verse 3, he turns and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember who you are, so praise God. 
if you are a redeemed and forgiven child of God and a citizen of His kingdom today, it is because of Him and His work and His life and His death and His righteousness and His grace and His mercy, not because of anything that you did to earn it. So yes, praise God, this is a natural right reflection. Puritan pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards once said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. One of my all-time favorite quotes. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Thinking of our salvation should always lead us to praise God. But now look at what he says regarding that salvation in the rest of verses 3 and 4. Notice again in this section, who is doing the work here? According to His mercy. He has caused us to be born again. He is keeping our inheritance for us. Who is this He? God the Father. So how does God, how does He do this? Look there in verse 4. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is reiterating and expounding on this idea that we looked at last week of God's sovereign work in our salvation. The phrase he uses here, born again, is unsurprisingly similar to Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Unsurprising because Peter was probably there. Peter was following Jesus. Peter was Peter heard Jesus speak. Peter was with Jesus when he taught. And so it's unsurprising that he would use some of the same terminology, some of the same analogies. But in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Look at how Jesus responds to Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus, this Jewish religious ruler, is confused by this, and he proceeds to ask Jesus, how can a person be born again once he is fully grown? That doesn't make sense. That's not possible. And that's exactly the point. That's the point that Jesus is getting across. Have you ever done that? You were really confused by something, so you asked the question, and as soon as you asked it out loud, then you realized what the answer was? That's the point. How can a person be born again once he has grown? He can't. A man can no more decide to be born a second time than he did to be born the first time. Both accounts, our original birth and our spiritual rebirth, are an act of God. Peter is driving this point home here. We are reborn, renewed, regenerated. Our lives and our minds in our lives and our minds according to God's mercy and by His power, not by any work on our behalf or on our part. Because there is no salvation apart from what God has done. Why does Peter keep emphasizing this? And it's going to continue, by the way, as a theme throughout this letter. And it's because if the all-powerful, all-knowing, never-changing God of the universe is the author of my salvation then I can take it to the bank. It is entirely and wholly and eternally secure forever. This is where in the Baptist world, the Baptist circle, the phrase, once saved, always saved. That's where this comes from. 
I know I am a child of God. I know I am born again. I know I have been changed by the Spirit of God because God first loved me and He opened my eyes to believe His Word and have faith in Him and repent of my sin. And if God's the one who did that in me, if God secured it, then it's not mine to lose. God's active role in our salvation guarantees our future glory. Look at how Peter describes it here. He says, God caused us to be reborn to a living hope and to a future inheritance that is, A, imperishable, meaning it cannot be corrupted. This is contrary to the Israelites' earthly inheritance in the Old Testament, which was corrupted by their sin and subsequently lost as a consequence. They lost the promised land. They lost that earthly inheritance because of their sin. This spiritual inheritance is incorruptible. It is imperishable. It's also undefiled, which means it cannot spoil. It can never stain or become dirty or lose its beauty. Romans 8.20 verse 22 reminds us that everything in this world is defiled by sin. Look at what Paul says. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So everything in our world has been in some way, shape, form, or fashion corrupted by sin. But not our future inheritance. Our spiritual inheritance, our salvation that God has kept for us is undefiled. It cannot spoil. It cannot be stained by sin. Why? Because it was secured by Jesus. And look at how the author of Hebrews describes Jesus in chapter 7, verse 26. Chapter 7, verse 26, the author of Hebrews writes, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Why can we count on our, our spiritual inheritance, our eternal salvation? Why, can, why is that undefiled? Because Jesus himself was undefiled. It was imperishable, it was undefiled, and it is unfading, which means it is eternal. It will last forever. The same idea is repeated later on in this letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. When the chief shepherd, that would be Christ, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The same idea, the same theme throughout, that this eternal inheritance cannot be lost, it cannot be diminished, it cannot be stained, it cannot be defiled. It is just as perfect when you get it as it was the day Christ secured it for you. This inheritance, Peter says, is secured or kept in heaven by God for you. It's dependent on His power to keep it, not yours. Amen? It says it's kept for you. So who are these people who will receive it? Who's the you? Who are these people who will receive this inheritance? Those who have faith. Those who have continuing trust in Christ. But even faith here is described as God's protection for the believer. The shield of faith, if you will, is God's power of protection, ensuring that His children will not fall ultimately, but will persevere to the end and receive this inheritance. This salvation that's ready to be revealed at Christ's second coming. And the best illustration of this, the best way for us to wrap our minds around it, we know and we understand without even realizing that we use this illustration all the time. 
the best illustration is simply the word saved. If you've been in church or around church, you've heard that term. If I'm a follower of Christ, I have been saved. I am saved. We use this word a lot, okay? We use this word often without really stopping to think about what that means. Salvation means being rescued from God's judgment on the last day. It means we'll stand before God on the last day and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and our sin debt will be paid and we will be spared God's wrath and judgment. That's that's what salvation means. That's what we are saved from. To be saved means to be saved from something. So salvation in that sense, get this, is a future event. Yet when I speak, when we speak, we say I am saved or I have been saved past tense. Why? Because it's as sure as done. We can rightly speak of it as a past tense event because when Christ says it is finished, it is finished. The first result of remembering your identity in Christ is the ability to praise God knowing that your salvation is eternally secure no matter what is going on in this world, no matter what is going on in your life. We can praise God knowing that whatever our circumstances are, that will not affect our future inheritance. Result number two naturally flows from the first. Result number two is that we can have joy in today's suffering. That seems counterintuitive or counterproductive. How can we have joy in suffering? But look at verses 6 through 9, the next section there. Verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this you rejoice, he says. What is this referring to? Part of the reason for some of the, gr- the grammar and stuff that we've been looking at this morning right, is because in Greek, this, is, this whole passage is one sentence. Right, there's all kinds of connections here. It's uh, super, super, super interesting. But in this you rejoice. What is this? What is the this referred to here? And that's, that's everything that we just talked about. Right, you could draw brackets around verses 3 through 5 in your Bible and draw an arrow to the word this. That's what this is. Everything we talked about. God's active role in securing your salvation. Our salvation. He says, rejoice knowing that your future salvation, your imperishable, undefiled, unfading spiritual inheritance is guaranteed to you if you are a child of God through faith. We can rejoice. We take joy in knowing this. Now this is a passage, this this section here is a passage that prosperity preachers The word of faith, folks, have to either ignore or skip over because Peter says here that knowing your salvation is secure doesn't necessarily change your present circumstances. Following Jesus doesn't take away pain and suffering in this life. In fact, if you follow the life of Christ and what Jesus said to his disciples and what happened to his disciples as we've been looking through the book of Acts, 
We should expect suffering in this life if we follow God. If we stand for truth, we, can ex- we should expect to be hated by the world. Especially in today's culture, like theirs, following Christ comes at a physical cost. It will cost you something. In fact, last week I mentioned that in fact it will cost you everything. Notice also that this is a statement of fact. It doesn't say you should rejoice. It says you do rejoice. You rejoice. Understanding what God has done for us will bring joy when we ponder it and understand it rightly. Always. If we are in Christ, to stop and reflect on the fact that God secured our salvation should bring joy to our lives. It will bring joy to our lives. He's not telling us that this is something we should do. He's saying this is something that's going to happen if you understand it correctly. How can you not have joy recognizing what God has done for you? So how can we then have joy in the face of persecution? How can we see the rising cost of following Jesus and know that if it hasn't hit us yet, it's coming for us soon and rejoice? How does that work? Take a look at verse 7. He says, so that, for those, those of you who have spent any time with me out in the youth building, so that is a trigger word, much like the word therefore. Anytime we see the word therefore, Zoe, what do we have to ask? What is the therefore? Therefore. All right. So when we see so that, it's the same thing. We should always ask, what is it therefore? We know when we see the phrase so that, that what follows is the result or the goal of the action. You can often substitute the word because to give yourself an idea, to get, to get a feel for it. So the so that here in verse 7 is a signal that what follows is the reason or the goal of this suffering and the trials that you experience in life. Look at what it says. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Genuineness of faith is the result of testing. Suffering and trials and persecution in this world serve to test your faith, to refine it, and your response, and in your response, you can find assurance of God's work in your life through the fruit in your life. It is through Suffering and trials and persecution that fruit grows. That your faith blooms. I've heard a couple people in this room over the last couple weeks when going through that are going through some difficult things in their lives, in their jobs, in their homes. And I've heard them use this phrase, and this is extremely encouraging for me. They say, you know, five or ten years ago, I would not have responded this way. I would not have handled it this way. Before I was a Christian, I would not have been okay with this. I would not have been able to continue this. I would not have responded this way. Trials allow an opportunity to put our faith into practice. And that outworking of faith, though it doesn't relieve the pain or the hardship or the consequences does reassure us that we are not who we used to be. John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, reportedly said, I am not what I ought to be. 
I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Our response to our circumstances expose whether our faith is genuine or not. Our response to our circumstances reveals where our loyalty and our allegiance truly lie. And it brings great joy to know that God is sovereign over all things, and therefore there is purpose in suffering. The trials and circumstances we face in this life are authored by God for a reason. God is in control and everything happens for a reason, even if we don't undersee it, even if we don't see it or understand it. Just like metal is heated and stressed and then beaten and hammered and then cooled and then heated and stressed and hammered again in order to mold it eventually into the image or the tool that the smith intends and to purify the metal in order to increase its strength and durability and improve its quality. So trials and difficult circumstances, including persecution in this life, mold us into the image or the tool that God would have us to be for the situation He would have us to walk in and to purify and refine our faith and so prove that it is genuine. We rejoice, we take joy, we find joy knowing that when we face hardship, it's because God is at work, not because God is absent. He then goes on to praise their faith, saying they love Christ and believe in Him and rejoice in Him even though they haven't seen Him. Why would he point this out? Because Peter did see Him. Remember, Peter walked with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He heard Him speak. He heard Him preach. He saw Him do miracles. But the people in these these churches didn't and still had faith, which he commends them for. And look at the result. The result of that faith is obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is what? What is the outcome of faith? He says, the salvation of your souls. Now, the use of the word souls here is not differentiating between body and soul or anything like that. It's merely referring in general to the whole person. The guaranteed outcome of persevering faith is eternal salvation from the wrath and judgment of God by the blood of Christ in our place. Again, we flip back to the author of the book of Hebrews. And he describes faith in this way in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, faith is not blind, but faith is not based on sight. Again, faith is, as Peter writes, by the power of God in and of itself. But faith is rooted in reality. We do not have faith in something that doesn't exist. Our sight does not determine existence. Just because we don't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Now notice the now in verse 8. Now you do not see Him. Though you don't see Him now implies what? That you will. You don't see Him now, but you will. I told you this one flowed straight from the first. We are sustained in our present circumstances because God's role in our justification guarantees our future salvation. We are sustained in the now because of what God did to guarantee what God is doing. You rejoice in God's saving work in your life, in what He has done, 
which will sustain you through what He is doing as He shaped you into what He promised you will be. Which leads us to the third result, and that is the greatness of God keeps our suffering in perspective. The greatness of God keeps our suffering in perspective. So we're going to finish out the section here, verses 10 through 12 in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 10 through 12. We're going to see concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets of the Old Testament, from the beginning all the way up and including John the Baptist, prophesied about the grace that was to come. The fulfillment of God's promise of salvation that would be fulfilled even though they didn't know when. They prophesied that a Messiah would come. He would suffer. He would triumph. And He would save. And this is why even John the Baptist, as he studied and as he, as he taught and as he preached and traveled around, as he's in prison, he sends his disciples back in Matthew chapter 11 to, to Jesus to ask if he was really the one. If he was the one foretold, he wanted to be sure. These men, these prophets, endured great hardship in the name of the Lord, but never saw this salvation manifest in its complete form in their lifetimes. They never saw it manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. And it was this salvation grace manifested in the person and the work of Christ that the apostles, including Peter, got to see firsthand. And this was the message that they were now preaching from the book of Acts on. The long-awaited day had come, and the readers of this letter were privy to this salvation, to the knowledge of the fulfillment of these prophecies in full. Even angels, he says, longs to, long to look into this salvation offered to men. This salvation grace is a unique relationship between God and humanity. Even the angels long to see. John MacArthur summarizes the section this way. He says, No matter how difficult life's trials are, Christians can face them triumphantly because of the greatness of God's grace in giving them a salvation that the prophets studied, the Holy Spirit inspired, the apostles preached, and the angels continued to investigate. On top of that, if you glance backwards to... Verse 6, Peter points out that no matter your circumstances, in the scope of eternity, these trials and sufferings are temporary. Our trials and our sufferings are temporary. And Paul agrees with Peter in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at what Paul says. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The only way you can look at what's going on in our world today and refer to it as light momentary affliction is if you have a great view of God. Only when compared to God do our problems seem trivial in comparison. 
when we keep our eyes fixed on the work of God and the greatness and the surety of our salvation, the salvation that He secured on our behalf, it doesn't remove our trials, but it puts them in perspective. For those of you who follow basketball, it's, it's March Madness season. And as I think about this, I'm reminded of it, I get this image of a player shooting a free throw at the end of a close game. The crowd is loud. There's some that are cheering, some that are booing, some jumping up and down and waving their arms and throwing things, trying to distract him. But a good player, what separates the good players from the rest is a good player learns to focus on the goal and shoot the ball according to how he has practiced for months and months and months. Focus on the goal and rely on his practice, on his training. He keeps his mind on the game, not on the crowd. In much the same way, when we keep our eyes on the king, the things of this world all of a sudden take on a different light. I'm reminded of the hymn we often sing and so often take for granted. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As Michelle comes to play and the praise team gets ready to lead us in worship, I want you to take a moment and reflect on these words of encouragement here that Peter has offered to his readers and that God has, through time, preserved for us. As you think about this, praise God that our salvation is secure, that salvation is not dependent on my continued performance. What a sad state I would be in if it was up to me. Praise God that our salvation is secure. Take joy in today's suffering knowing that God has a purpose in it. Even if we don't understand it. God never promises to help us understand why He does what He does. That's part of serving an infinite God. But take joy knowing that it has a purpose. That He's in control. Praise God our salvation is secure. Take joy in today's suffering and keep your eyes fixed on Him as you walk through life. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you're convicted today that you don't have assurance of salvation, or if if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never placed your trust in Him, I'm here to tell you that there is no other way. There is no other option. There is no plan B. And there is no guarantee of tomorrow. I pray the Lord will convict your heart and open your eyes to the truth of His Word. And if that is you, if you're at the end of your rope and you know you need Him, but you don't know what to do or what all this means, then I'll stick around here at the front at the end of the service if you would like to talk or pray. Pastor Mark will be at the back. Grab one of us. We would love to work through that with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. 
Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that these churches received and that we can now receive. Lord, it's, it's just amazing how the trials and the tribulations and the issues that these churches faced are in many ways the exact same things that we face today. Different details, but the same form. And Lord, we know looking at history, the, the persecution at this point just continued to mount, continued to rise, and it continued to get harder and harder and harder to follow Jesus. The cost went higher and higher. And just as Peter issues this encouragement to them, Lord, help us to take courage from this. Help us to stand firm, to remember who we are in you. That we are not citizens of this world. And Lord, that our citizenship in heaven, our inheritance that you have secured for us, you are guarding and you are keeping. Lord, we thank you for the faith that you've granted us to believe you. Lord, thank you for making it possible through the blood of Christ that we could repent and have our sins forgiven and be washed white as snow, be clothed in His righteousness in Your presence. Lord, it's only because of that that we can stand before You even and pray today. Lord, I thank You for all the ways that You've blessed us so far above and beyond what we deserve. Lord, help us to be willing, not just be willing, but help us to walk away from everything of this world, realizing that it's all Yours and everything we have and everything we are are tools to be used for Your honor and Your glory and to further Your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are all-powerful and all-knowing and that you never change. For the hope and the comfort, the living hope that we have. Not in something that might happen, but in the surety of what's already been guaranteed. Lord, help us to live in that reality as we walk out these doors this morning. And help us to shine that light in the community, in our jobs, in our homes, everywhere that we go. Help us to live with that joy ever before us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
able to stand here this morning and sing those, sing that last song, knowing that that is our guaranteed future reality. That's where the only source of ultimate joy and hope come from here in this life. Praise God if that's you, if we can, if we can do that. And again, if that's not you, if you want to talk, if you want to pray, I'll be at the front. Pastor Mark will be at the back. Uh, and make sure that you grab one of us this morning before you, before you head out, before you leave. We would love to sit down and visit with you and let you know more about what it means to, to follow Christ and how you can do that. I'm going to close us in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day and for everything that you've done for us, Lord, for the salvation that you secured, for the fact that you came while we were sinners, lived the life we couldn't live, and died on the death that we deserved on that cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Lord, help us to never forget the price that you paid, Lord. Your grace is freely offered, but it will cost us everything. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to stand firm on your word as we leave this place and head out into a world that's lost and dying and that needs you. Lord, I pray that that hope and the joy that we have, uh, Lord, that you would give us an opportunity this week to be a witness and to tell other people about the source of hope that we have. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.